everyone. It is great to see you today, and um, we're going to be reading from 1 Samuel 22. 1 Samuel 22. I know you're juggling right now, giving your offering and uh, maybe turning in your Bible, so I'll give you just a minute. Um, I want to say a couple of things before we get started today, maybe three things. I do encourage you, if you do not have your um, uh, boys and young men involved in Royal Ranger ministry, now we often we think of youth and we think of uh, kids' church, but uh, Rangers is such, such a great program. I came through Rangers. Uh, show you how old I am. I remember when it was introduced to the Assemblies of God for the first time. Um, so that was, that was back, um, oh, I don't know if I remember Ulysses S. Grant was president about that time. No, it was the mid-60s and it was an exciting time. Uh, uh, most, I think I can say most, or many of us boys that grew up during that time, we were already in Cub Scouts and Boy Scouts, but now to have that program with a very distinct emphasis on Christ. And it's changed through the years. It's a, it's a little different than it was when I began, but it is an excellent program. And we encourage you to bring your guys in on Wednesday night. Um, second thing, I want to say thank you to Pastor Justin for the excellent job he did in men's breakfast yesterday. And uh, it, was a, it was a great time hearing from his, uh, his heart. Thirdly, Ramona and I, all of our family, would like to say thank you so much for your kindness, your thoughtfulness, your precious cards and your gifts that you gave to us last Sunday uh, on, on the 25th anniversary of our being here. And um, uh, I, it, it, words fail me. I, I got something written out, but I didn't get it to the bulletin in time, what I wanted to put in. But uh, we wanted to say thank you so much for that. It's very, very much appreciated. Words fail us to convey how deeply appreciated it is. So thank you. Now, let's jump in with both feet to the life of David, number five. The name of the lesson today is the Gibberim. And you say, I don't remember who was he king in Israel. No, that's a word uh, that's plural. It talks about a group of men. We know them as David's mighty men. Uh, they began as 300, grew to 600. They would first find a common bond with David at the cave of Adullam. By the time you find them with him a few years later in Hebron, David is becoming king and they're their interest in David turned to loyalty to David, which turned to love for David, and they would serve him all the days of their life. The lesson isn't just about them today. We'll have a lesson about them toward the end of David's life. When David was dying, he remembered this group of men and what they did. But uh, this was the time when David's fortunes began to change. Instead of running by himself, a group of men come to him at the place called uh, uh, Adullam. It was a cave. If you've been with us to Israel, you've been in the shadow of Adullam. It overlooks the valley of Elah. And um, we want to pick up from where we were last week when we talked about the presence. David began, I know you're tired of hearing that word wilderness, but um, I want to tell you, David is going to leave the wilderness next week. And he's going to be anointed king. So it's coming and we're about to enter the second of three phases of David's life. But I do need to mention about the wilderness again today and, and how to leave the wilderness. How many of you say, yeah, okay, okay, how do I get out of here? That's what we're going to talk about next week. Last week we talked about the presence of the Lord. And we saw David being supernaturally protected as he ran to Samuel. Um, three times a detachment of soldiers from Saul went to arrest him and to kill him. And three times the power of God overshadowed these men and they ended up on their faces prophesying blessing over David. Saul came to arrest and kill David himself and for the fourth time the power of God protected David as he, as he learned to, to wait in the presence. But then David did something um, 
that we're not sure exactly why he did, he ran. Um, you would think that he would have said, I need to stay here. This is where I'm safe. But sometimes we, we just, we don't know what mo uh, motivates the thought processes in our mind. And we make bad decisions. And he went from the very presence of God to a place that represented the presence of God to him, where the priest dwelt in the little village of Nob. And there he, using religious language, he, he sounded like he was in the right place doing the wrong thing. But he told half-truths and full lies. He got, uh, he got weapons and he got food and he ran. And the result was going to be catastrophic. It was going to be catastrophic. We'll see that today. And you say, well, where did he run from there? Maybe he was trying to correct his mistake. I don't think so. Because he ran from there to the Philistine village of Gath, which was the hometown of Goliath. Why in the world would David run to the village that was the hometown of the hero he just killed or, or months earlier killed? And uh, David had to, had to resort to acting like an idiot. A lot of times we have to do that when we run from God's safety. We have to resort to acting like idiots. I know I've done that. And um, they thought he was insane. And in that culture, you never touched an insane person. You didn't mistreat them. The best thing you could do seriously was to get them out of your midst so you didn't inadvertently do something wrong to them and, in, and incur the wrath of the gods. So David went foolishly to the town of Gath. He ends up foaming at the mouth, rolling in the dirt, eating garbage. And they say, this the king uh, uh, of Gath says, this is all I need is another, uh, is another crazy man. So he sends David away and David escapes. Now, this is where we're going to pick up 1 Samuel 22. Now, let me say this before we, before we read this. Um, I, I said, I know you're tired of hearing that word wilderness because you, you don't want to be reminded of where you might be right now. But let me tell you five things about the wilderness. This isn't in your notes, but uh, it's something that I hope you've picked up and you've realized. You, you say, well, what do you mean by wilderness? Somebody asked me this week, is what I'm going through, could that be a wilderness like you're talking about? That was a good question. You've got to understand that you can identify the wilderness by at least five things that are going on there. Number one, your wilderness may look different from someone else's wilderness, but a wilderness is always a place of discomfort. It's always a place where the niceties and sometimes the necessities of life are taken away. And uh, it's a place of discomfort, number one. Number two, when you're in the wilderness, whatever the wilderness looks like, there's a lack of provision, at least on some level. Uh, it's not that God lets you die in the wilderness. He'll send manna and he'll send provision. You may be like an Elijah that God has your air or your food airlifted in and provides water for you from a brook, even though the land is in famine. <coughs> but it lacks provision on at least on some superficial level. Number three, it's a place of solitude. Sometimes you're absolutely alone, like, uh, like, like Jesus. Sometimes you're absolutely alone, like Elijah was, at least for the first part of his ministry when you're in the wilderness. Sometimes you have friends that steal away to you occasionally, as Jonathan did to David. But you find that even good people, good friends, solid relationships are sometimes seemingly taken away. They're not really taken away, but God arranges things so you don't have your friends uh, always to lean on like you're accustomed to having. So it's a place of discomfort. It's a place that lacks provision. It's a place that to some degree is a place of solitude. And here it is. It's a place that is designed to teach you lessons about the things of God you couldn't learn anywhere else. Man does not live by bread alone. That's the curriculum. That's the banner. If you went to a Saturday football game in the wilderness, that would be the sign over the bleachers in the stands. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds about, uh, from the mouth of God. And loved ones, every time we're in the wilderness, even if it's punitive, we are sent to the wilderness to learn that man does not live by his 
resources. Man does not live by his intellect. Man does not live by what savvy skills he thinks he possesses, but we must live by the word of God. And whenever Jesus was taken into the wilderness, the first response to the devil, he learned it right away. He got it. Okay. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The fifth and last thing about the the wilderness is this. Um, It looks different at different seasons to different people. You know that when David was in the wilderness, some of the time he was in a desert. Some of the time he was in a forest. Some of the time he was in a cave that was a barren place near a lush place. Um, Sometimes we're gonna find out that David's final stint in the wilderness, he lived in a house inside a walled city. So wilderness is not just the desert. Wilderness is that place. Let me give them to you again since they're not in your notes. It's a place of discomfort. It's a place that lacks provision. It's a place to some degree or another of solitude. Number four, it's where you are assigned to live life lessons. And number five, don't be deceived. The the jungle can look different to your neighbor. You and your neighbor can both be in the jungle at the same time, and one describes it as, as, a, as a cave, another describes it as a barren place. Now, what we want to talk about next week is how to get out of the jungle. Or out of the jungle. Um, that's, that's a movie, I think. Uh, how to get out of the wilderness. But today, we want to talk about God shaping David during this time when the Giborim were coming to him. What we're going to read about today covers a period. Now we know David was 70 years old when he died. We know he was 30 when he became king. We don't know how old David was when he was a shepherd boy. He was young enough that he was not considered someone to be brought to the dinner table when Samuel came. He was described as a youth when he went up against Goliath. So we're we're pretty accurate when we say that uh, that, uh, David was in his mid to late teens when the story begins. He spent some time in the army of David building up this mighty reputation. He spent some time calming uh, in the army of David. I'm sorry, I'm trying to hurry. In the army of Saul. He spent some time uh, soothing Saul's um, uh, uh, collapse when the enemy would come to torment him by singing songs to him in the night. So this wilderness time, we can make a good hard case for it being uh, probably at least five years. Some have said as many as 12. I think probably we're, we're on pretty solid ground. And I won't bore you with the reasons why. We don't have time to talk about that. But we can say with fair certainty that David was in his wilderness seven to ten years. You say, well, I I was hoping more, Pastor, for like seven to ten weeks. Well, sometimes it happens that way. But I just want to tell you, it was a substantive time. Now, what happened where we left off last week, David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. Now remember, he was in the presence of God. He fled to what we would call church, where the priests were. He lied and, and by sounding religious, got what he wanted. And that's always a second step that we take seemingly when we leave the presence of God. We've learned the language. We, want the pre- we know that the presence of God is powerful. But so many times we flee to church. And you ought to be in church. But we flee to religion instead of the presence. And that's what David did. And he ended up going to Gath and realized that this is a, this is a mistake. And you've got to understand, David was a young man at this time, probably in his early, early 20s. And um, he's got to make all these decisions that a lifetime of experience would have given him wisdom to know how to handle. But he's just a young man. He's, he's, he's not even old enough to be a college graduate probably at this point. So he does what was really the wise thing to do when you don't know what to do. Sometimes it's best just to pull away. And he goes to the cave of Adullam. Now, the cave of Adullam was not in the wilderness. It was, um, it was in, uh, near the valley of Elah. It was of, a, of an altitude that it would have been sort of barren. But it was a place of refuge for shepherds. 
a place of refuge for small groups of men. Several hundred could stay there. Um, we know during the intertestamental period that Judas Maccabeus, the hammer, when he was fighting against the occupying Idumeans in, in that period between Malachi and Matthew, his army fled to the cave of Adullam and they stayed there following in the steps of David. But when he got there, his brothers and his father's household heard about it. They went to him there. Okay. They realized Jesse and all of David's brothers, uh, his sisters, others realized that the king will come for us if they can't find David. So you've got this, this group of scores of people that find out where David is. It's David's family. They come to David at the cave of Adullam and somehow the word begins to get around. Are you with me? The word begins to get around. Well, we don't know where David is, but we know where his family went. Uh, the, the household of Jesse could not slip out of town very easily. It was a little caravan and people began to say, well, it's rumored that David is in Adullam. And, um, you know, they went to the post office in Bethlehem. And, well, Jesse left. He left a forwarding address at the cave of Adullam. No, that didn't happen. I was just seeing if you're paying attention. And um, slowly, men began to come to David. They were in distress. Uh, and, and, I, and I pastor churches like this, in distress and debt and discontented. They were in distress. That meant they had come to the place where they did not know what to do. That's what the word distress means. They had run out of options. They had tried everything. They knew that the nation of Israel was, was undergoing a shaking and that God was bringing judgment. They didn't know what to do. They were in distress or they, went, uh, or they were in debt. And what that meant is either that they were in arrears with their taxes to the king or their, uh, that's what some of them were, I'm sure. Others, they just could not get a crop to work. They could not get their business to work. They were in danger. And in those days, if you could not pay your debts, you and or your family was seized and sent into slavery to the one to whom you owed the debt. It was a, it was a horrible time. It was like the time of the debtor's prisons in England. And then here's that other word that just catches everybody else, just discontented. They just weren't happy. Now, I'd like for you to, to, to be able to tell you that everybody that came to David were grade A citizens and God woke them up in the middle of the night or gave them a dream or during their devotions or communion. God says, yea, Justin, yea, I say to thee, go to the man who is after my own heart for thou hast lived your life nobly, and thou hast lived under the blessing of God. Go to David and serve the king there in Adullam. But that's not what it says. There were people that said we had nowhere else to go. And what did David do? What did David think when he realized that yeah, people are coming to me and they've got more problems than I do? It began with 400 men. It would grow to about 600 men. Some of them, in fact, a substantial number from them, of them were from Saul's own tribe. We know that from the Chronicles account. By the way, if you haven't picked up the, the, the story of David we're telling, we're taking from the Samuel account. Uh, Chronicles isn't different. It just doesn't have the same points of emphasis. And uh, so David is all of a sudden in a place where they're, they're crowded uh, 400 men plus another hundred probably of David's family would have crowded out Adullam and David's got to figure out what do I do? Now the principal characters in the story today are David, Saul, Jonathan, the Giborim, Abiathar and Gad. Now Abiathar and Gad are important because th this reflects a change in the way David handles his situation. Now he has a principal character, two of them in his life, that will change the way he lives his life. Abiathar was the priest. And when Abiathar left Nob during the slaughter of the priests under Saul, he took the ephod with him. In other words, he went into whatever holy place was there. He grabbed a linen garment that had the ephod sewed into it. And into that, um, 
front of that garment were 12 stones that represented the 12 tribes of Israel. You read about it in the wilderness. You'll read about it later. It was the way that God spoke to his people on so many occasions. The Urim, the Thummim, we don't know what that means. We don't have a description of that. But the ephod would somehow supernaturally indicate the will of God. Some have wondered if certain stones lighted up or uh, if, if there were if there were the casting of lots associated with it. We just don't know. But he had the presence of mind to grab the ephod. So into David's camp comes not only a priest, but a priest who says, God is here to direct you. God is here to help you. And Gad was the prophet. We will later read about Nathan, but Gad and Nathan were both prophets in the life of David. And the story that we'll cover today is found in 1 Samuel 22 to 28. Now here's the central truth. It's a takeoff of truths we've already discovered, but we need to get it down before we go into the, the rule and reign of David. When fighting our battles, there is nothing more important than fighting the right way. Let me say that one more time. When fighting our battles, especially battles over our destiny, over our calling, over our ministry, you can have a calling and a destiny and be treacherous and manipulative. You can have a calling and a destiny and be disloyal to those that have gone before you. You can have a calling and a destiny and not be pure in your heart. We know all of those things. Saul is a prime example of that. So what we have to learn from this point in David's story is that when fighting our battles, there's nothing more important than fighting the right way. Now let's think over some things. You've got to understand that the Bible says that Saul recruited well. We think of David's army as just being superior to Saul's army, and that's why David won. No, the opposite is true. Uh, Saul had recruited. Is that rain? Well, we need to see if this is some sort of supernatural message. We haven't had it in years, I don't think. Well, anyway, no, I'm teasing. Um, Saul, Saul had recruited well. This is what... 1 Samuel 14 says, every place Saul went, whenever he went through a town, if he saw a young man that looked strong and powerful, he, he recruited him into his army. This is exactly what Samuel said would happen. He said, you're going to find, if you choose a king, he is going to gather all of your strong young men to himself and make them serve in the army. And that's what Saul did. He had an army of thousands. And I want to tell you something else about Saul. He was winning battle after battle after battle. Saul was not a slouch. Saul was not a disappointment to the people of Israel. That's why he wanted Saul after God rejected him from being king because of the sin of his heart. He said, please appear with me, Saul, because the people understand me to be a mighty leader. Please don't do anything to change that opinion in their minds. <coughs> so he had thousands of men. But David's army was made up of desperate men. They were not trained warriors. They were not equipped the way Saul's army was equipped. Now David's family was part of this uh, gibberine, but like Saul's army, the gibberine, that's a poorly written sentence, I didn't write it well. The gibberine represented every tribe. David had men from every tribe that were following him. Now we're going to find with time, the families of these men joined them. So David has responsibility not only for these 600 warriors, but for their wives and their children and any other uh, family members they were responsible for. The gibberine grows to 600 men and their commonality. They had, th how would you like to build a church with this? The commonality is that we all hate one man and because we hate this man, we'll be loyal to you. That's not much to begin with, but something happened. And let me say this, this is not about the life of David, but this is the way God deals with us. This is the way God is building his church. We come to him in our distress. 
We come to him in our discontent. We come to him with all of the baggage and all of the problems that we carry. We come to him at, at, at Dulem. Most of us come to Jesus to solve our problems. But with the passing of time, instead of being uh, loyal to Jesus because he's a problem solver, we become loyal to Jesus because we love him. And that is the Christian life. That is a Christian life. You've got to get out of the Adullam mentality and get to the Hebron mentality. But that's another story altogether. Now, the Giborim, as I said, means mighty men or brave ones. Their loyalty to David would eventually turn to love for David. And they would follow the fugitive king from Adullam to Hebrew, uh, Hebron. These men would follow David for the rest of their lives. And you say, what do you mean Hebron? This is where David was actually made king. Okay, so they went from the cave to coronation to conquest. The Gibberim are going to be an interesting study when we get to them. Um, the odds were overwhelmingly in Saul's favor. For instance, in one setting, and it could have been greater odds in another setting, but 3,000 trained men would fight against between 400 and 600 of David's ragtag army. Now, here's another just a little interesting tidbit. The Chronicles account of David's life, this is 1 Chronicles 12, tells us that David's men were ambidextrous. Um, some versions say they were left-handed, but what that meant was not that they were all left-handed. It meant that they were able to fight with their right hand or their left hand. And, and what, what it meant is that they were able to shoot arrows, sling rocks, or use the sword with the right hand or the left with equal skill. The Bible indicates this, but it doesn't make it clear. The probability is that they were taught this by David in the wilderness. You say, well, how did David know how to be ambidextrous? When you spend your young life in the wilderness watching over sheep and the pastures watching sheep, you'll, you'll find all kinds of things to keep yourself busy. So David was singing songs and writing psalms and practicing with the sling. And he said, oh, I'm good with the sling. I wonder if I can do it with my other hand. And you've got to understand, he was developing these skills over the years. And he taught it to the men who came to him fleeing Saul. Now, let me, are y'all with me? Let me ask you one more question here. You, you keep bringing this up. Let me ask you this question. When you are in the wilderness... How do you spend your time in the wilderness? Do you spend your time just wanting to get out? Or are you preparing for your day of liberation? Are you saying, God, how long? <sighs> well, what are you going to do about it? I will say, how long? Now, some of the greatest psalms are psalms where David says, how long? And I want to tell you, there's a time in your life where the best prayer you can pray is, Lord, how long? How long are you going to do this? But I want to tell you, people that are overcomers for God, learn that your time in unpleasant places, whatever your wilderness looks like, you can either spend your time complaining about being in the wilderness or you can decide, what am I going to do on my day of liberation? I was at a church that absolutely hated me. You say, oh, pastor, you're exaggerating. Why would you think the church hated you? <laughs> they told me they did. <laughs> I mean, I had pretty good indicator. They told me they did. Now, not everybody, of course, but I want to tell you, those that said that were the loudest voices to me. They were, the, they were the, the, the point where my focus went. It was wrong. I know it was wrong, but I was, I was just young and inexperienced and I should not have done. But I tell you, when God began to break through in my life and gave me that time of deliverance, uh, I thought, okay, now it's over. And I began to realize shortly is that it's not time for me to leave my wilderness, but I need, instead of complaining about my wilderness, I need to start planning what I'm going to do on my day of liberation. And that's when I started a file. I, I, I didn't even know what to call it. And so I finally wrote the words of Martin Luther King Jr. on it. I just wrote across the top of the file, free at last, meaning that day's coming. 
And I began to write the lessons God was teaching me and what I would want to do and how I would lead the next church. There was no indication I was going anywhere. In fact, until I came here, I stayed at that difficult place longer than any other church I served. But the thing that tilted everything for me is when I, and I spent years complaining. I I didn't know how to focus on the good people there and, and, and not focus on the negatives. And I spent years complaining and finally God began to do a significant work in me. And the, and the first lesson he taught me was don't spend your time wasted in the wilderness. Spend your time planning what you're going to do when you, your stay in the wilderness is over. You know, there's a great movie. I can't remember. There's several movies about Joseph and I can't remember which one this is or who it stars. I think uh, Ben Kingsley is in it, if that gives you any kind of clue. But in the movie about Joseph, Joseph is getting all this revelation from the Lord. He's interpreting dreams for the baker and the wine tester. And and everybody keeps forgetting him. And Joseph is just preparing his life. He's serving in the dungeon, but he's preparing his life for the moment when God will get him out of that dungeon. And in a scene that brought me to tears, a guard comes in and grabs Joseph and handles him roughly like he had been doing for years. And he slams Joseph up against the wall and begins to scrub him down and they begin to pour water over him. And Joseph doesn't understand what's happening. He was prepared for a beating, but he's being scrubbed clean. And he says, what is happening? And someone says, you're appearing before Pharaoh. And Joseph begins to weep and he begins to laugh because he knows that the day he's been preparing for is finally about to happen. And loved ones, we need to take a bath. We need to get ready for the victory that God is going to bring later into our lives. Now, you say, well, is that really biblical, that scene in the movie? Well, the Psalms tell us about David, about Joseph, and it says that while he was in the fetters of prison, that the iron from the fetters entered his soul. And that was a poetic way of saying the adversity that he was facing in prison. He knew the day was coming when his wilderness experience would end. So instead of letting it eat into his heart, he let it build up his soul. Ah, This is good. Now, let's talk about quickly because we want to receive communion at the end of the service today. Let's talk quickly about David's movements. Now, going back to the story where we left off last week, where David fakes madness and flees from Gath. David left his family in the care of the king of Moab and Mizpah while seeking God for direction. That's that's what David did after they came to him at Adullam. He makes an alliance with the king of Moab, who were the enemies of God's people. But he said, let my family stay here while I get the direction of God. The word of the Lord came to David through the prophet Gad and David was told, don't stay in the stronghold, but return to the forests and deserts of Judah. In other words, he says, if these people, this is what Gad says, the Lord says, if these people can find you here, the Giborim, the mighty men um, who were not yet mighty men, if they can find you here, if your family can find you here, then everybody else can find you here, including Saul's spies, get back into the wilderness. And David went about doing things like this. He liberated the Jewish settlement of Keilah from the Philistines. He set them free. They were under the the dominion of the Philistines. But even though David set them free, they were willing to betray David to Saul. And betrayals like this occurred more than once during David's wilderness years. Betrayal was not something unknown to David. So David went from place to place in the wilderness, finally finding refuge in a place called En Gedi. And um, few would go to En Gedi, few would survive there. Let me tell you, when I was in En Gedi, that's one of my favorite places in Israel. You you walk along, it's it's a national park now. Uh, I I guess what we would call a national park in Israel. And as you walk along, you see the ibex, the deer, uh, the the hinds feed in high places animal. You see them walking in treacherous places. And it's said that it was there that David wrote, uh, as the deer panteth for the water, so my soul 
pants and longs after you, O God. And all along the face of the, of the mountain there, there are caves, dozens and dozens and dozens of caves. You don't know which one it was, but in one of those caves, David, and you can see for miles down to the Dead Sea and all over, it's down near Masada, near Qumran. And David could see an army coming for miles. And he hid his men in the back of a cave. Saul had to go to the bathroom and he went into the very cave where David was to relieve himself. That's where that story took place. You go down to the other end from the caves and there's a stream of water. And as I, as I got there, I didn't bring a change of clothes for that event. I didn't know it was going to be like that. But I let the water uh, just pour down on my hands and my arms. And I, and I just, I began to weep. This was the, the first time I went to Israel. And I realized that this is the only spring in this area. This is the only place for miles and miles and miles that you could ever get water. It's called David's spring. And as I let the water flow over me, I realized David did the same thing. David's men did the same thing. And Saul chased him to that place in En Gedi. He was there for a while. David moves on. He has a providential encounter with Nabal and Abigail. This is the story I preached about before. Time doesn't permit me to, to dwell here on this story long. But Nabal had a, was a very wealthy man, had a huge herd of sheep. David and his men watched over the sheep. This was a normal, um, uh, fairly common occurrence. Uh, David has, it's been said that David was in a protection racket where he took care of Nabal's sheep and then went expected payment. It was not that way in my opinion. Um, it, it, it was just a culture we're not accustomed to. But the custom would have been anyone that helped you when it was at time for, time for shearing. Um, there was not a spoken contract, but it was an unspoken contract. You went to receive payment. David sent his men. Protection racket doesn't go to, re to request something. It goes to demand something. And Nabal, whose name means fool, now his wife, who'd lived with him for years, later says he, his mama named him right. That's what my husband is. He is a fool. And Nabal treated the men of David so shamefully and dishonored him. And he said, who is David? There's a lot of slaves running away from their master's house these days. David's nothing more than a criminal that ran from the house of Saul. And there's David doing everything he can in his power to, to honor Saul and to not dishonor Saul. And so David loses it. He just snaps. And beware of those snap moments. Beware of those snap moments. And David takes a few of his men and he's riding down. He's going to take Nabal's head from his shoulders and on his way to destroy this man, Abigail stops him, has an offering for his men, food and, and nourishment. And she says, David, this is, this, is the, this is the pivotal moment. She says, David, everybody in Israel knows what Samuel has said. Everybody knows you are going to be king. And David the day will come soon when God will elevate you to the throne. But if you do this, if you kill my husband, even though he deserves it, David, everybody will regard you as a bloody man. Everybody will regard you as a murderer. All over the internet, there will be the news of what you did to the, to the husband of Abigail and your hands will be full of blood. And God, hear me, God will not be able to do for you what he wants to do. And David calmed down and David said, God, be blessed for putting someone like you in my path and in my step uh, to keep me from doing something foolish. And David goes back his own way, accepting her gifts, but willing to be wronged by Nabal. And it wasn't long after that, that Nabal, uh, the, the, the scripture says that he received the stroke of God. Now it's not a stroke of God, but that's why, that's why we use the word stroke today when someone's brain ceases to function the way that it functioned before. It goes back to the old day when it was unexplainable medically. They didn't understand what caused it. And they just said it was the stroke of God. And, it, and it's not necessarily the stroke of God at all. We know there's medical reason for it, but I think in Nabal's case, it was the stroke of God. 
and he lives a few days, he dies. David goes and takes Abigail and she becomes one of his wives. Now I preached that message. I looked the other day, I probably preached that message three times here. And um, I think every time I preach it, people say the first Christian life lesson is that if you're married to an idiot, don't worry, God will kill him and you can get another husband. <laughs> but uh, that's not the lesson. That's not the lesson of this story. But it is what happened to Abigail, and she became one of the wives of David. David passed another test, and there's months in between these things, when a second opportunity to kill Saul presented itself in chapter 26. Um, that's when Saul is asleep, and the Bible says that the Lord put Saul and Abner, his general, under a deep sleep, and all the guard around him were under a deep sleep. And uh, David and one of his... Um, right-hand men, one of his Giborim walk into the camp, nobody wakes up, and he takes Saul's water jar, we, we call it his canteen, and his spear, and they escape. And then David begins to call out, Abner, shouldn't you be taking better care of your boss than this? And David had a chance twice to kill. Now, what happens by the time we get to chapter 27, David agrees to live in Philistia as a mercenary. He goes back to Gath. You say, why would he do it again? Because the first time David went essentially alone and he realizes I've got to get out of here. But now David goes as a warrior. A lot of time has passed. And he realizes the, the Philistines do, they realize that now everywhere David goes, he wins battles. And he kills his enemies. So they let him live among Philistia. Bible tells us that he lived with them for a year and four months. Um, they thought David was going out and raiding Israelite cities. But what he was really doing is going out and raiding the cities of Moab and some Philistian cities. And would come back and say, well, I conquered this group of Jews. I conquered that group of Jews. They thought David's heart had turned. Are you following me? I know this kind of sounds like... Uh, a soap opera, but that's, that's what was happening. But this is the bloodiest time of David's life. And I'll tell you why, because whenever David would raid these cities of Moab and the cities of the enemy, he understood that he could leave no one alive to tell what David had done. And it's a bloody time. It's a time we don't understand with our Western sensibilities, but David would kill every man and woman in those cities. And he would take out the, the riches of the city, sometimes giving it to Jewish communities, sometimes keeping it for himself. But Philistia was providing food, shelter, and weapons for David, and he was fighting against Philistia itself. This is a bloody, you say, well, well, why did God make him king? Because Abigail said, David, if you kill my husband, this is, this is, this is going to make you a bloody man. Well, you got to remember, God was protecting him from foolish and unwarranted reprisals. That's why he wouldn't let him kill Saul and he wouldn't let him kill Nabal. The other deaths that David was responsible for, they were acts of war. But I'll tell you what God did say to David when he wanted to build the temple. He, he, he didn't have blood on his hands in the sense of like a Nabal or a Saul, but he was a bloody king. And God said, because your hands are so bloody, your son's going to build it. So the Philistines rewarded David by giving him and his army the town of Ziklag. It was a little country town. It was on the border. And so now David is no longer living in caves. He's no longer living in tents. He's living in a walled city with his own house, but he's still in the wilderness. And we're going to find out how he got out of the wilderness next week. Saul's pursuit. Let's, let's just a couple of minutes. Saul pursued David to Nob. You remember Nob? That's where the, the priests were uh, that helped David. Doeg uh, did an unspeakable horror that day. They tried to tell, the priests tried to tell Saul, we didn't know we were aiding an, a, a, re, a rebellion. This, David's your right-hand man. When he comes asking for things in the name of the king, we thought we should do it. But Saul, in his idiocy and in his anger, he called them all liars. And he commanded the uh, uh, army of Israel to kill all of the priests and their families. And they would not do it. They had seen enough of David's loyalty and they had seen enough of Saul's treachery that they were not going to add the guilt of that bloodshed to their hands. But there was an Edomite named Doeg 
who was there and he took up the sword, killed 85 priests along with their wives, their children. One priest alone, Abiathar, that's the priest I told you about who grabbed the ephod. He escaped and became the priest of the Lord to David and his men. Saul had been highly successful in his wars against Philistia, against the Amorites, against the Amalekites, and the Hittites. Saul is winning battles north, east, south, west. He's, he's, he's becoming the, the general patent of his day. But he is so driven by his foolish anger and jealousy that he takes 3,000 men who are desperately needed for his campaigns and he sends them against David. And what makes it worse, Saul himself becomes the leader of that expeditionary force. Now, the Bible says that during these months that would turn into years, they, the armies were close at times. In one case, can you imagine this? One case... They were so close that Saul and his men were moving this way on this side of the mountain and David and his men were moving this way on the other side of the mountain. They didn't even know, or the indication is David knew, but Saul didn't even know how close his armies were. Um, at one place called Horesh, Saul's army was so close to David and his men that Jonathan goes over to David's camp to encourage him. Now listen to this. While David was at Horesh in the desert of Ziph, he learned that Saul had come out to take his life. And Saul's son, Jonathan, went to David at Horesh and helped him find strength in God. Don't be afraid, he said. My father, Saul, will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel and I will be second to you. Even my father, Saul, knows this. The two of them made a covenant before the Lord. Then Jonathan went home, but David remained at Horish. Twice Saul could have easily been killed by David. In chapter 24, there at the, uh, the spring of the wild goats in Gedi, the place I just told you about, David cuts off the edge. I, I don't mean to be crude, but this is what the Bible says. Saul went in to relieve himself. He takes his cloak off. He lays it down. He takes care of business. And when he comes out, the edge of his cloak is missing. And he finds out, David yells down to him from a place of safety, Saul, why are you chasing me? Don't you realize if I was your enemy, you would be dead right now. Here's the part of your cloak. I cut your cloak. It could have just as easily been your neck. Then in chapter 26, David spared Saul again at Jeshimon. He and Abishai sneak into camp, took Saul's spear and water jug and he stands up and says, that's when he taunts Abner saying, you're not much of a commander in chief or a commander of the armies. You can't even take care of your king when he's lying right next to you in camp. Here's his water jug. Here's his spear. And you know what David did in the height of honoring Saul? He says, send one of your young men to come get this. He said, I don't have the right to this but I'm trying to wake you up, Saul. Why are you pursuing me? Now, let me tell you the amazing thing. Both times David spared the life of Saul. Both times Saul repents. I swear by God, I will never chase you again. And both times Saul went back to his old ways. Peter would put it this way in his second epistle. He says, people like this are springs without water. He said, people that appear to be one thing and then go back on their promises. He says, it's like a dog that returns to his vomit or a pig that was clean only to go and wallow in the mire again. Jude said they are clouds without rain, trees without fruit. And in chapter 28, Saul crossed the final line of mercy when he consulted the witch of Endor. That's where our story will begin next week. So what are the Christian life lessons? Let me give you four very quickly. And if you'll listen fast, I'll talk fast. Here's the first thing we learned from this era in David's life. Find a way to serve even if circumstances aren't what you hope for. David found a way to fight against the enemies of Israel even when his own people considered him an enemy. He, he, he was forced to live with the enemy, but even in those difficult times, he found a way. He found a way to do the work of God. He found a way to fulfill the purposes of God, even when everything was set against him and it was not easy for him. 
And guys, I just want to say this, certainly there's nobody at Christian Life this way, but I'll just talk about other times in my life. I have known people that received a genuine word from the Lord or had a wonderful plan that they were following, but things weren't working out for them the way they thought it would work out. And they just sat down and waited for everybody else to serve them. They waited for the church to get right with God. They waited for the pastor to repent. They waited for the assemblies of God to have a revival. They waited for the right person to get in the White House. I mean, whatever God promised them, it didn't matter. Everybody's against me. Nobody's working for me. Loved ones, let me tell you, the greatest among you, the ones that will rise up instead of being left behind in the dust, you will find a way to do the will of God even when there are others that seem to be opposing you. Because sometimes that opposition is actually God's goad pushing you into the, the destiny that you have. Even, I mean, even, even the New Testament understands this principle. Paul would make this, he says, don't take care of those who refuse to work. If you need to take care of them, fine. But I want to know that they're doing everything in their power to help themselves. Even when the order of widows was, came, was brought into bear, he said, nobody needs help more than the widows. But be sure that you're helping widows that are widows indeed. He said, if, they ha if they're living with their son, it's their son's responsibility to take care of them. If they have children, it's their children's responsibility to take care of them. So we, we have an epidemic in every phase of church history going all the way back to David of, of people that the challenge is, this is what God promised me. How do I make it happen? Because nobody's working with me. You do what David did. You find a way to do what you can until God makes everything line up for you. Here's number two. Keep the ephod in camp. David made stupid move after stupid move until the ephod was brought into camp by, um, the, by Abiathar, the priest that escaped. And, and instead of David making bad decisions, this is what you see when the ephod gets in camp. David said, the Philistines are fighting against Kayla and looting the threshing floors. And he inquired of the Lord saying, shall I go and attack these Philistines? The Lord answered him, go and attack them and save Kelah. But David's men said to him, here in Judah, we're afraid. How much more if we go to Kelah against the Philistine forces? So David inquired of the Lord and the Lord answered him, go down to Kelah. I'm going to give the Philistines to your hand. David and his men went, fought and won the battle. He inflicted heavy losses on the Philistines and saved the people of Kelah. How did this happen? Verse six, because Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had brought the ephod down with him when he fled to David. That changed everything. The means for determining the will of God was now with David. And David understood, all I have to do is seek the will of God. Now I told you the ephod was a linen garment associated with the breastplate worn by the high priest and had to do with discerning the will of God. David learned that every move of his life was to be directed by God. And guys, I want to say one more thing just as a caution. I'm trying to hurry. The, 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 the men are ready to receive communion and we need to get you served before that Grape juice ferments, but just bear with me for a minute. I am finding in my generation, I'm finding an epidemic. I'm finding an epidemic in my generation of men and women that are saying this. Now they've served 40, some of them 50 years in serving the Lord in his church. And what I'm finding more and more is they say, if I had it to do over again, I would not do what I did. I would do something else. Now, don't get me wrong. There's several things. If I had it to do over again, I would do differently. Uh, there, there's, a, there's, I mean, several things. Um, in fact, if, if I had, if this was Hollywood and I could have my fondest dream, I, I, would, I would go back to my very young days, but only if I know what I know now. I, I, I would love to be 18 again if I know what I know now. And I've been telling the Lord, I don't think there's any provision for this, but, but if, you know, just if. It's one thing to say, boy, if I had it to go over again, I would do this instead of this. I'd do it this way instead of this way. There are some places I've served that I think if I knew what I know now, 
And I, I wouldn't want to serve those places because I went to those places to learn what I learned now. Are you understanding me? But what I'm hearing my generation say is I would not have gone into ministry if I had it to do over again. And I'm not talking about an occasional person here and there. I'm, I am frightened for my generation that we have a large number of men and women that are saying it has not been worth what it cost. It has not, I, you know, I, I asked one person, I said, what you're saying? I said, you told me, I know when God called you to preach and you're saying you would, you would, you, to do what you said you would just do, you would have to walk away from that whole encounter. And he never did have an answer for me. Loved ones, keep the ephod in camp and understand that there are tough places. There are good places. There are tough trials. There are times of blessing, but God makes it all work together for good. What you and I need to do, what you and I need to do is be sure that we're consulting the Lord. Okay, here's the third lesson. People are driven by sin and carnality. And when they are like that, they are often unreliable, even when they make solemn vows. And what I, what I want you to understand is that something David had to learn is that you can't trust a demonized man. And we, you say, well, I don't trust any demonized men. I would never invite those people into my house for a meal. But you know what we do? We take broken systems and we lean on those systems. This was said of Israel in more than one occasion during the days of Hezekiah and during the days after Josiah when Jeremiah was prophesying. It was said of both the northern kingdom and the, and the southern kingdom. God pictured Israel as walking around leaning on a cane. Now there's nothing wrong with leaning on a cane as long as you've got the right cane. But this is what God said to the children of Israel. He said, you are leaning on that Cain, Egypt. Egypt was, the, was, was one of the most powerful nations. They had recovered from their days with Moses. And they were at war with Babylon. And he said, you are, in, in Assyria, he said, you are leaning on a cane to help you stand. But the problem is you're not leaning on me. The problem is you're leaning on Egypt. And he said, I'll tell you what Egypt will do. You, when you need the support the most, you will lean on this cane and it will shatter and it will drive pieces of wood into your hand and you will lose what strength you have leaning on the wrong cane. You say, well, I don't need any cane. When you encounter God, you'll walk with a limp the rest of your life. In fact, I don't fully trust people that don't walk with a limp spiritually. He says, you do need a cane, but you need to be, let me be the cane. So what do we do with the canes we lean on? What do we do with Egypt? We take that, key, that cane and we throw it away. And we say, Lord, I'd rather walk with a limp and trust you than trust the wrong walking staff. We've got to understand that people driven by sin. You know, it's, it's at this point, it's at this point that David began to understand, I can never count on Saul. This will never be fixed. This relationship is not recoverable. I've got to put all my eggs in one basket. I can't hope for the absolution of Saul. I will lean on the Lord for everything he's promised. And here's the last thing. Keep your hands clean. Let God fight your battles. Let him be your defender and your protection. David set out and went to the place where Saul had camped. This is going back to um, Jeshimon. He saw where Saul and Abner, the commander of the army, had lain down. Saul was lying inside the camp. The army escaped around him. David then asked Ahimelech, the Hittite, um, who will go down to the camp with me to Saul? I'll go with you. Boy, this is where the mighty men begin to emerge. Now it's not just about getting our problems solved. Now we're for David. So David and Abishai went to the army by night and there was Saul lying asleep inside the camp with his spear stuck in the ground near his head. Abner and the soldiers were lying around him and Abishai said to David, today God has delivered your enemy into your hands. This is the same thing they said to him at En Gedi. Now let me pin him to the ground. See, they knew David didn't want to kill him. 
So he said, don't worry, I'll take care of it. Let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of the spear. I won't strike him twice. In other words, he says, David, this won't be a hesitant. He said, he won't move again if you'll let me do this. But David said to Abishai, don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? As surely as the Lord lives, the Lord himself will strike him. Or his time will come and he will die or go into battle and perish. But the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. Now get the spear and water jug that are near his head and let's go. So David took the spear and the water jug near Saul's head and they left. No one saw or knew about it, nor did anyone wake up. They were all sleeping because the Lord had put them into a deep sleep. The Lord knows how to do that. He can do it to lions. He can do it to soldiers. Now here's the last thing I want you to understand. Please hear me. Just before God prepares to pull you out of the wilderness, false doors will appear begging you to open them over and over and over. I guarantee you the most dangerous time in your journey with the Lord will be just before he delivers your destiny to you. There will be a half dozen ways to make what you want to happen, happen. And every one of them will be wrong. Every one of them will be sinful Every one of them will be a compromise. So don't be surprised if your greatest challenge to receiving your greatest days, number one, does not occur just before you're made king, number one. And number two, don't be surprised if you find a dozen ways to force things to happen. It may mean that you've been waiting for a spouse for years, you're holding out for a man of God, a godly man or a godly woman. But all of a sudden you say, man, I'm, I'm, my childbearing years are passing or, or I'll never find anybody. And, and what will happen? You will find an absolutely adorable guy or gal. Uh, dep- now that's not giving you a choice. I mean, depending on what you are, uh, guy or gal. And it's, it's right. It's like, you know. They're right there in front of you and you say, well, why not? Nothing's happened so far. And you're prepared to walk down the aisle with a person that is no more the will of God than Francis the talking mule is. Or Or you go to a church that is no more the will of God. If you're a pastor, you go to a church that is no more the will of God than an than a Islamic mosque would be. So what you've got to do right now at the end of this lesson is stay steady and let God do what he promised he would do. And can I tell you this as I close? This is the most difficult part. Going into battle isn't the hard part. Running in the wilderness isn't the hard part. The hardest part, I, I'm telling you, the hardest part is realizing where did this thing come from anyway? How did I, how did I get, how did I start leaning on this thing and getting rid of it? Ushers, would you come and prepare to serve? Listen, this way we're going to end the service today. The ushers are going to serve you. We're going to receive communion. After communion, the altars will be open for anyone that does not know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Please just come forward to the ministry teams. We want to pray with you. I know we've, we've gone over today, but it's fairly common. So um, I, I don't, I'm not trying to be silly when I say that. I'm, I'm just saying we're trying, but we, we, we can't always get done exactly when we want to. Um, but when we receive communion today, and let me say this before they begin to serve you. Um, our tradition here at our church is we all receive together. So the, the bread and the cup will be passed to you and it'll, it'll, it'll happen pretty quickly. But we ask you to just hold the bread and the cup till everyone has received them. We'll eat together. We'll drink together. But uh, go ahead, brothers, and begin to serve the folks. But this is what I want you to know today, okay? As, thank you. As we receive the Lord's 
table together, what we're doing, what we're doing very simply is this. We're saying, Lord, I'm tired of the wilderness. I want to get out. But today, as I receive communion with you, I'm not, I'm not willing to, t- to open any false doors. I'm not willing to open any false doors. And I tell you, God spoke something to me that he's never spoken to me before. Um, at the 1st of October, he said, I want you to have communion with me every day. Now, I don't think communion is best done alone. It's a, it's a community thing. But he said, I want you to have communion with me every day. And he said, I'll explain to you what we're doing. And when I received communion the first day, the Lord said, I'm moving you to a place where you don't lean on any other staff. And I'm moving you to a place where you don't have to fight recurring battles of compromise. That's what this communion is about. And every day, you know, for 13 days now, I've been receiving communion and I'm remembering I'm not going to lean on that staff. I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm not going to borrow that money. I'm not going to go that place. I'm not going to do that thing. God is saying, I want to move to the place where I am your all in all. Are you, are you hearing me? I, you say, Pastor, we, have you been living a hypocritical life that God's not your all in all? No, I would have said he was my all in all. But I will tell you this, the closer you get to God, the more you'll see that he wants to adjust. Father, as we receive the cup and the bread today, we ask in Jesus' name for you to help us to cross that line. Help us to learn what David learned in the wilderness, that we don't want to lean on a staff that you didn't give us. We don't want to take a life that is not ours to take. We don't even want to offer criticism that is not ours to make. We believe your promises and we believe that you're going to help us to not walk through false doors. You're going to help us to not walk through and take false opportunities. Those around us will say, isn't it obvious God has brought you to this place to give you victory? And we're going to say this isn't the place God has opened for me. God will do it in his time and his way. That's what this communion is about.